All right, my name is uh, Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited about the opportunity to look into uh, the passage that uh, Katie just read for us. Uh, We've been going through a series on the doctrine of heaven and getting a sense of what we have to look forward to, what is this future. And today in particular, we'll be looking at our future place and that environment. Um, So all of that lengthy reading there, some of those descriptors, a lot to think about. We're going to try to unpack that in our time together. But before we begin, let's go ahead and open with a, a word of prayer. God, I thank you for uh, this text of Scripture, the way that it uh, catches our minds, our imagination, the the words, the images that come to mind. God, I pray you would use all of those elements of human speech to grab a hold of our hearts this morning, that you would build within us a great desire uh, for this future place and understand uh, what it means for us in our lives today. So as you think about the story of Peter Pan... Uh, do you, you ever think about where he's from, uh, that, that place, right, that just kind of rolls off the tongue, never, never land? Uh, just perfectly fitting for this peculiar character and where he's from, kind of fits with the story and kind of helps you as a reader to understand, okay, I kind of understand what we're talking about here in this category. Uh, what about Harry Potter, right? You think about the UK, you think about uh, King's Cross and nine and three quarters, you think about Hogwarts, and uh, these locations, each of these are part of the story. They're very much describing uh, the location and helping you understand more because of the space that the story takes place in. It's the setting. It's the the story that uh, tells part of it from the location. But even in great works of literature, if you change the location, the story would be very different, right? You ever think about uh, a tree grows in Brooklyn? I don't know if you've ever read that. The story would be quite a bit different if it were a a tree grows in Manhattan, right? It would be quite a different uh, upbringing that that child would have gone through, quite of a different uh, way this would have played out. Uh, additionally, you can think around uh, just your favorite fairy tales. You may read your kids at night, and you think about how the location, they're in the forest or they're by the sea. Each of these stories, it's that exact setting that makes a significant difference. What we see in each of these is that space is an essential part of the story. The space becomes a place to us over time. It really starts to take on meaning. So you can think of just individual spaces of the world, places of geography. Like I can say places like the Alamo, Waterloo, Pearl Harbor. And when you hear these phrases, they're just spaces, right? People live there, people do stuff, there's something to see. But each of them also emotes something to them. And that's what really makes them a personal place. There's an understanding, there's some significance to it. Right? It even works in our local region. If you think about Back Bay, or you think about Winter Hill, Brookline, or Maplewood, each of these are just place, spaces for people. But if you understand what's happening there and have a connection with what is happening in that place, it begins to become more like a place. Place conveys meaning as we think of what takes up that space. We are people of space. That's all that we really need in life, right? We need some ability for our bodies to take up space in this world, but we really crave place, a place where we fit, a place where we have meaning. You know, we make this up in all of our lives, right? Our homes are a place to us, a place where we fit together, we feel comfortable, we have certain emotions, probably very different attire that we wear in that place of our homes. We do it at work and our desks and the place that we associate and sort of say, hey, this is my place, this is where I get work done. Even here at church, your row and potentially some of you in your individual seats that you're sitting in here in the church have a connection to you. It's your place. You know where you are when you're there. 
So when we kind of extend this to the world over and we think about our entire creation, this world that we live in, we think of it as a place where we belong. This is, this is our planet. This has elements that we're used to. And if we're honest, sometimes when we talk about heaven, it really doesn't feel like a place to us. It's really just space. It's this abstract idea that someday there's this heaven that I'm going to go to. And to be honest, it doesn't really sound all that compelling. It sounds maybe weird, maybe interesting. You'd like to know more about it. But it's not our place. And sometimes, if we're honest, the thought of spending an eternity in this location that doesn't feel like home, that feels very different from the world that we probably enjoy to some extent here, can be something unattractive to us, something that we're not willing to be a part of. And so, yeah, we can kind of say, sure, if I'm going to float on some cloud and play a harp, I mean, I guess that sounds okay for maybe like a year or two. After that, I I don't really know what we're going to do. I'm going to be bored, right? That, That just doesn't seem like the right idea. So what we want to do this morning is really kind of dig into what is going to happen to the new heaven and the new earth by starting to talk about what is going to change with this current earth and this current heavens. So the big idea from our message today is our hope of a future place should change our current living. Our hope of a future place will change our current living. I wonder if you could turn down the feedback just a little bit. I'm hearing a a little bit back if you can see if there's something we can do on that. Uh, as we dig into this, uh, we talk about the new heaven and the new earth and, and what it'll be like. It means it's going to change what's going to happen here. I even thought about kind of subtitling this idea of this message about, so whatever happened to the earth, right? Because it's going to be different. So you'd almost be asking yourselves, what, what happened? That, that previous earth, that earth that I was about, about previously, that I lived on, how, how, is, how is that going on? What's going to happen there? So if we kind of take that perspective of being in the new heaven and new earth and kind of look back understand how greatly this world will change. It will give us a view of exactly what uh, this, this new heaven, new earth, and that hope is going to be like. So I've organized this to hopefully make easy sense and be able to remember it across three R's, okay? So we're going to hear about our, our current earth and our current heaven are going to need to be refined, they're going to be redeemed, and then they're going to be redesigned. So they're going to be refined or purged, redeemed, and then redesigned. And that's going to walk us through this passage. And each of those actually are going to have different texts that we're going to look at. And they're going to be depictions for us of how big this change is going to happen in the new heaven and the new earth. So at this point, it's probably helpful for me to explain what I mean by new heaven and new earth, because there could sometimes be some confusion, right? Heaven and earth, what are we talking about here? So earth is pretty straightforward, right? No one has any questions on what is related to the earth. I think, I think that one's pretty clear, right? Uh, so no, no confusion there. When I say the heavens, what we're referring to uh, is not what I used to think of as a kid when I'd hear this new, new heaven. That's crazy. God gets a new house too? That's awesome. Um, not at all what this is referring to. This is referring to heavens looks at really our sky, our atmosphere, outer space. That's really what's brought under this term. So when you have the biblical idea of new heaven and new earth, it's really the full expanse of our world, what we would usually term as the universe. That's what's envisioned by this. So when we say there's a new heaven and a new earth, we're looking at a brand new, spanking different universe. It'll be changed to a new heaven and a new earth. So as we kind of dig into this, uh, we need to keep that in mind that that's uh, the main focus for us. So let's look at our first uh, element here and talk about a refined heaven and a new earth. And our text for this will be in 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 8 through 13. And uh, I have that, I think, up on the screen here for you, so you can kind of follow along. Uh, It says, in some smaller font there, but do not overlook the, the one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies or elements will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sorts of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of, the, day of God, because of which the heavens, which will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter deals in this passage with really the perception that since the future days of judgment haven't come yet, perhaps God is just slow. Uh, But Peter corrects this view. He helps us understand that really God's timing is different and really underlying all this is his desire for more people to come to repentance. Uh, And so he works at a different timetable. But then Peter talks about this day of the Lord, this future eschatological, this this final event of, of history that's coming up. And in that day of the Lord, it will be sudden like the coming of a thief. Unexpected, you're not waiting for it exactly. It comes and you don't know when it's going to happen. Then he gets to these, these words in verse 10. So if we take a little closer look at, uh, at these words, he gives us a view of kind of catastrophic uh, understanding of events, right? Talks about the heavens passing away with a roar, these heavenly bodies being burned up. So this is some flammable language, very destructive, right? That's coming out. Before we unpack this though, Uh, We need to really look at this last phrase here about the earth and the works that are done on it being exposed. So the word exposed here could could literally be translated as found. Um, It's a Greek word, hirisko. It's very common. We see this word being uh, oftentimes used about uh, this future evaluation and kind of what's found from our works, what what is left. So Jesus uses this on some of his teaching on the Mount of Olives and talks about the coming of the Son of Man. And so the idea, if I could paint you an image of what he's talking about here with this idea of exposure, is uh, really pointing to uh, an understanding that it's like a refining of metals. So under extreme heat and destructive forces, right, dross and impurity are removed from a metal so that the pure can be found and it's really exposed. So this happens not only to the works on the earth, but also the earth itself. Our world that we live in is going to go through this refining process. So what I want us to understand here from 2 Peter chapter 3 and these, these verses that we're reading is that the heaven and, heaven and earth that we live in now are not destined for annihilation. It's not that they're going to be completely removed, never to be, to be enjoyed again, and that they're totally a waste. They're merely waiting for a purging of the sinful elements that are here. Now, it's going to be significant, don't get me wrong, but it's not that it goes away entirety as in annihilation. In 2 Peter 3, uh, Peter writes, and he makes a connection with the flood of Noah. And I think it's a really helpful way to think about this because that's a story we're all pretty familiar with usually and and read it in children's stories and it's used throughout culture. This is an example where there was sinfulness in the world and it was purged uh, and only those who remained were the refined ones, the ones that had been kept pure for that point. So this flood was cataclysmic, devastating, made significant changes, but it didn't obliterate the world. It didn't make it cease to exist. It was still a good earth, and there were still a family and animals and things to be delivered from God's judgment in order to re-inhabit that world. Similarly, when we think about what's going to happen with this fire cleansing that is described in 2 Peter, it's going to be very thorough, 
very significant in what's happening and permanently eliminating the sin, sin elements that are present in creation. But just as God's judgment by water didn't make the earth permanently uninhabitable, neither will God's judgment by fire. So what might this mean? I mean, this is kind of different way of thinking, not usually your, uh, your favorite Sunday morning uh, topic of musing, but as you try to think through it, John Piper is helpful as he talks about this text and he says uh, that the present earth and heavens will pass away. It does not have to mean that they go out of existence, but may mean that there will be such a change in them that their present condition passes away. We might even make the connection that as a caterpillar passes away, a butterfly emerges. So it's that kind of stripping down significant transformation, but still those fundamental matter and elements are still there to be used in a future way. So what's important to walk away from this is that this text does not teach a rejection of any awareness of ecology or care of this planet. Uh, The response that all of this is going to burn up anyways, if you've ever heard that, guilty of saying it as I am at points, you, you know that that actually isn't fitting with this teaching of this passage. The response is, is that it, isn't, it is going to be burned up, but that doesn't give us freedom and license to treat it however we want. Three quick reasons why that's true from this passage. First, the idea that this uh, change is going to happen like a thief in the night means you have no idea when this change that we're awaiting to happen with, with this fire and this purging, this refining is going to happen. And it doesn't mean that there's not going to be any destruction and problems on this earth while we live here. So while we can have hope that We don't need to fear that humanity is going to be wiped off the planet and the earth will be totally destroyed and fly into the sun or whatever those those stories are like. We we know God's in control. That's never going to happen. But there's no reason to assume that there's going to be no impact of suffering or pain in humanity because of how we treat or respond to the earth that God has given us. No, we're called to be uh, careful in how we treat these things. Secondly, uh, Peter talks about living really in a a way of preparing for the end. He talks about living in holiness and godliness as he describes our living. So you would be hard-pressed to take lust, greed, gluttony, unrestrained waste, and associate those with the terms of living in godliness and holiness. The two don't don't relate. You're unable to say, I'm going to live reckless in this world and care nothing for what God has given us and created. And so I'm going to just use that up and still call that holiness and godliness. There must be a way that we do that differently. So the best option is to really think finally about kind of the analogy we have with our bodies. Last time I spoke with, spoke with you here, we talked about our future bodies and what they would look like uh, as resurrected bodies. And in that sense, we know that our bodies are going to waste away. They're going to go into the ground. They're going to dissolve. But that doesn't give us the right to live however we want and do whatever we want to our bodies. There's still God's temple, and there's a command over how we use that. Similarly, this earth, yes, it's going to go through some major uh, refinement, some purging that's going to happen. That doesn't give us the right to live however we want on this earth and treat it however we uh, would like. God has given us a responsibility as managers of the planet to care for it in holiness and godliness. So that's our, our first understanding. Okay, if there's going to be this refinement taking place, the second thing we're going to look at is this idea of rede- redemption or redeeming this present world. So our text for this is, is going from Uh, Romans chapter 8. And we started our series about our bright future with this text of Romans 8.18. It's talking about the present day sufferings are nothing to be compared with the glories that we await. And now we come back to this text and we look at really what the glory of our future place is going to look like. So we can look around and we probably see a lot of sin elements and we can think, yeah, bring that refinement, bring that purging. I can see that in the world. 
but it may not be immediately obvious to us how redemption is needed of this earth and how it needs to be bought back and brought back to our creator. So this text is really helpful to help get that imagery or that depiction of what's happening. So I have that text up here for us. Um, Actually, there it is. Uh, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This idea of eager longing, this waiting that's happening, it's literally like straining your neck, stretching out your head so you can see. That's what's happening in the created world right now. It may not feel like it when you just look outside the doors and see what's happening, but that is what this text is describing to us. So I don't know if you've ever been at a wedding, right? One of those really large ones with a really long church and lots of guests in it and all these things, and you come there for this wedding, but you're not like in the wedding, you're not like family, but you're there. And you ever like try to look up and ahead and you want to see the bride and groom, you kind of do one of these numbers, you're like moving your head, stretching out there. If you ever go to like a political uh, rally or heard a speech from someone, right? Big giant auditorium, all these people just clapping, they're moving, standing up, and you're trying to try to see over somebody's head, straining your neck, put it out there as far as you can. You feel that that like tension that you have there. That's what this verse is saying is happening with all of creation. It's longing, it's waiting, it's stretching to see what God is going to do. Then the remainder of these verses, then in, in Romans 8, talk about for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Pretty graphic, right? That's what it's describing. We don't always think about it, but it's saying that right now our world, our created place where we live, is currently in bondage to corruption. So you think about the curse that God brought on the earth after Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, that is present and corrupting our world. So yeah, sure, there's lots of enjoyable things we can have in this world, but also when you stop to look around, you'll see things aren't quite working the way they're supposed to. Things are messed up in the natural order of this world. So you might wonder, what does corruption or fallenness look like in the created world? Think about the fits of of creation and what happens, the demonstration of a fallen world. Talk about volcanoes. Okay? I don't know if anyone thinks those are cool, if you've done your uh, baking soda project yet for your kids at home or anything uh, for school, but I'm sure it's coming. Oregon State University's Volcano World site explains volcanoes are just a natural way that the Earth and other planets have of cooling off and releasing internal heat and pressure. Volcanoes erupt because of density and pressure. The lower density of the magma relative to the surrounding rocks causes it to rise like air bubbles in syrup. So when you think about the destructive force of a volcanic eruption, it's evidence of imbalance. There's imperfection in our world. This devastating uh, impact is not meant to be. It's not what God was looking to do. There isn't something innately beautiful about an erupting volcano. You also, the same could be said for earthquakes and tornadoes, tsunamis and floods. Each of these and more are demonstrated as imbalance or problems in our world. And these catastrophic events are not part of the new heaven and the new earth. There is not going to continue to be earthquakes and volcanoes, tornadoes ripping through the kingdom of God. None of that makes sense and fits with what God has intended. They're evidences of things not working perfectly, things that are are out of control. There's also a decay in the world, right? There's rusting. Erosion, rifts, sinkholes, these are naturally occurring points of corruption and decay in our world 
that point to the fact that the world is not getting better, but is actually getting further from its created goodness, wholeness, and purpose. So as we see these things present in our world, God is definitely here and around us, protecting us and in control and sovereign over them. But these are evidences of sin and and a, a step away from the purpose that God created the world. Uh, Albert Walters, a, a theologian, says, Redemption means restoration. That is the return to the goodness of an originally unscathed creation. This restoration affects the whole of creational life and not merely some elements within it. A commentator, uh, uh, Grant Osborne, says, Creation has been unable to realize its God-intended potential because it was subjected to frustration or futility and cannot fulfill the purpose that God designed for it. So what would redemption look like? All right, if it's all these problems, you can kind of imagine, okay, I hate these things in the world. You can see the destruction they cause. So what would it look like uh, if it was actually redeemed and things were working according to the purpose that God created it? It's not so otherworldly that we couldn't imagine it. It's actually well, very similar to what we've said about the resurrected body. There's points of continuity and there's points of discontinuity. But to give you a taste of what this looks like, I'm going to just quickly read from Isaiah chapter 11 in the Old Testament. This is a depiction of just how things will change dramatically. Isaiah writes, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy, for the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So these changes in the animal kingdom will show not only a difference in how animals interact with one another, how humans interact with animals, but even, to be honest, the lion's going to have to have some significant gastrointestinal changes to be able to eat straw like an ox, right? So there are some significant changes that are coming to our world. And this is just with the animals. So you can imagine the environment, the places, what it'll be like to be in this new heaven and this new earth. An absence of hurt and destruction, all of creation, flora and fauna, with no sin or corruption functioning as God made it to be. So we've said our earth is going to be refined, it's going to be redeemed, but now let's talk about the redesign that is coming for this. And our text for this is going to be in Revelation 21, the the passage that Katie just read. And I'm going to have it up on the screen. I'm not going to read it word for word for her uh, as we go through it, but I'm going to refer to it along the way. As we look at this redesign, uh, it's his redemptive activity that God does not destroy the works of his hand, but cleanses them from sin and perfects them so that they may finally reach the goal for which he created them. Uh, Applied to the problem at hand, uh, this principle means that the new earth to which we look forward will not be totally different from the present one, but will be a renewal or glorification of the earth on which we now live. So I've very deliberately chosen the word redesign to convey what new heaven and new earth mean. It means not the emergence of a a totally uh, different cosmos that's uh, different from the present one, but the creation of a universe which, though it has been gloriously renewed, stands in continuity to the one we live in and enjoy right now. So let's get into Revelation 21. You'll see in that first paragraph up at the beginning as Katie read it, the idea is really that the new heaven and the new earth uh, are going to come because the first heaven and the first earth pass away. They're moving away from uh, existence. They're changing. This is the refinement we talked about. And then this new city, Jerusalem, is actually the element of heaven and God's abode as well as the skies, 
coming down into a closer connection than what we experience right now in our relationship with heaven and earth. So they come together, and it brings this new city of Jerusalem together. So I'm just going to just walk through this really quickly uh, to get a good feel for what's happening here, and hopefully enlivening your imagination to this text. Read these words. Think about them. Try to picture those, uh, these elements that John is trying to describe for us. It's interesting. He has the vantage point up on a mountain. So he's not in this city. He takes a step out of the city. He's up on some mountain with an angel, and he's looking out. So one, you can be happy. Any, uh, any Westerners that we have here in the, uh, with us today, the mountains seem to still be there. So there's still going to be mountains. That's a good sign. John's at one. He's looking out, and he's seeing the city, this urban area of what's there. And he describes it in verses 11 through 21 of, of Revelation 21. He's, he's really describing the appearance of the city. So I'm going to walk through that quickly with you. Describes this beauty in verse 11. Uh, as, as kind of this section right here as he's describing the holy city coming down from heaven, having the glory of God. It's like radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. He's trying to describe just the beauty that you're intaking when you see this new city. The idea that it's uh, jasper, but it's somehow not opaque like we know jasper to be. It's actually clear as crystal, maybe more like a diamond as it's just refining this light. You can't miss in this description, Revelation 21, the light that is emanating throughout the city. It's always bright. It's bringing this light to us. It's reflecting off this jewels and what you're seeing. And secondly, he describes the gates and the foundation in verses 12 through 14. As Katie read it, and you can see it's almost humorous to read through it. You're like, okay, I got it. There's a lot of gates, all right? There's 12 gates, three in each direction uh, that are set up. It's like a large city like Rome or Babylon of the day, much larger than ancient Jerusalem that only had five gates. It has this high wall of security, so you have a sense of just how great and important the city is. It describes the apostles and the tribes of Israel, and it has their names on things to signify that the church and the nation of Israel are brought together as a whole people of God inhabiting the city. So you can imagine just all the people that are there throughout time and history, all the believers, those following Yahweh and the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, those who have put their faith in Christ across the globe, across history, all in one location teeming together, excited by that. So it brings us naturally to these, these measurements uh, that come out on, uh, on the next one. And you'll see the description. It doesn't mean a lot to us when you read it, but it's really a cube that he's describing. There's, there's length, there's width, and there's height, and they're all equal. He talks about being uh, 12,000 stadia, which is, again, not much to us. We're like, what, what are you talking about? It's kind of strange. It's really described as like something like 1,500 uh, 1500 miles in each dimension. This is a massive city. Uh, it's interesting that potentially uh, the, the length of the Roman Empire from Spain all the way to the Euphrates was also fit, uh, this 12,000 stadia in that dimension. So you can kind of get an idea, yeah, this was a massive location, but it's not like beyond the realm of possibility of, of what that would look like. Probably there's some symbolic number here in what he's doing and trying to draw attention, but like it's meant to be huge. It's going to be big enough for all the believers throughout history to be there. You see what this is like. Then look at his description of really what is in the materials in verses 18 through 21. He talks about, uh, I was going to read through it again, but for the sake of time, I won't read those. Katie read all these gems, and at least half of them I've never seen before, I think. So as you, as you look at them, right, they're real things. I'm not a jewel guy. I don't know a lot about them, but you, know, you see onyx and emerald and sapphires and jaspers. Okay, yeah, there's a lot of jewelry hanging out in the city, and that's describing what the walls look like. You have gates that are like whole pearls. Can you imagine the concept or what that would even cost or how you would construct such a thing? That's the view of this. And then if you can, again, go back to this emanating light, bouncing off of all of this jewel effect, you can imagine a city that is absolutely brilliant in displaying its, its beauty. 
we would probably say from this that it's an architectural beauty for sure, and even more than what we might expect from natural beauty. So if any of you des enjoy design, like architecture in the world, imagine what this future place will be like, perfectly designed to reflect all this light, to show off the beauty there. You know uh, Frank Gehry, right, the, uh, the architect designer, he did the, the status center in, at MIT, that kind of weird Looney Tune building uh, that's over there, and you're like, okay, all these curves and stuff. I mean, it's pretty awesome to look at. He said, uh, I think quite rightly, that architecture should speak of its time and place, yet yearn for timelessness. So it's fitting for its time and place, but also it's trying, it's yearning, it's aiming for this timelessness. Have you ever thought about this text here in Revelation 21? As strange as it is, as different as it is, this has been the text that has caught the imagination of believers throughout history. Ever since John penned it, people are dreaming, thinking, yeah, that still sounds like a pretty interesting place I'd like to see. It's truly timeless architecture in place here that God has for us, that we can hope for and dream ahead. In, uh, in the next part here, you can see he describes, uh, I think I have the, the next pages. If I don't, uh, go back one, sorry. Uh, he has the conditions of the city in the rest of this chapter. I'm just going to read, read a summary to you. He described it because uh, Pastor Cruz talked about this previously. There's no temple in this city because there's Jesus. There's no need for sun or moon because we have the glory of God. There's no need for closed gates because there's no sin. It's completely secure. There's nothing unclean or shameful in this entire city. So it's truly an amazing site, a place where we will be, that you can enjoy architectural and urban place. But Revelation 22 goes on to describe really uh, a garden-like Eden revisited. Revelation 22, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were there for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So you can just get this picture. I don't know if this is Central Park, Boston Common, that view. There's this garden aspect of this giant city as well, where you're still going to enjoy those nature aspects of tree and fruit, of growth and life, this river. There's also this mountain out there. There's things beyond. This is part of what God offers to us. So as you enjoy whether the architectural beauty or the natural beauty of life that we see out in nature, we're just struck by that beauty and it always hits us, right? One of those things, one or the other probably affects you as a person. You're drawn to it. You want to look to it. Really that beauty that we sense in this world is just a call to transcendence, an invitation for us to know that there is this future aspiration, this hope when we'll actually see completed beauty. Nothing here on this world, no piece of art, no nature that we can enjoy and be a part of, no architectural enterprise, is significant enough to really satisfy our longing for beauty. But it does point us to this hidden hope that we'll one day enjoy. So as you think about this redesign, I just kind of want to bring this back into focus. Okay, we're going to refine this, rid the earth of a lot of sinful elements. We're going to redeem it so that it actually is fulfilling its purpose. So what does this redesign do? Well, think of it like you're redesigning your house, right? If you're going to do a new kitchen, what are you thinking? You're thinking, okay, I want to open it up a little bit. I want to have it so people can kind of be around the preparation of food, and it's a, a cool community place. Maybe you think, hey, the house is kind of too boxed up. Maybe I want to redesign it for an open concept. So conversation can flow from room to room. People can associate with each other. Maybe you have this vision of your backyard space. You think, I want this patio and this, this awesome backyard so the kids can play and we can hang out together. And you have that vision. So you're trying to accomplish a message, a goal from your space, that place where you're, you're, at, you're at. So you redesign with that intention. 
it's that desire to bring that out. That's what happens in the new heaven and the new earth. The absence of sin and corruption and a perfect design by God so that we are ultimately fulfilling this glory of God. Can you imagine that? Actually going into the city with all this resounding color, the jewels, the light going together in ways that we can't even quite put words to as John is struggling to do it. And you think of it, that perfect design in its cubic form is so that you can perfectly show off the glory of God. That as we're together as people, spending time giving glory to God in what we do and what we say as we're with other people there, in the presence of God, it's going to work perfectly. And the space is perfectly made for that activity. In heaven and earth, up and down, across this length, the animals, the creation, the natural beauty, the architectural beauty, everything pointing toward one thing, the glory of God and his presence that's there. Can you imagine that? There's nothing that we've been like that. Occasionally you get those moments where you see a gorgeous sunset on the top of Acadia and you look out there and you say, yes, I can see that. I I can sense that there's someone greater than me. God made this world. Maybe you look across the ocean, you see the massness of the Atlantic Ocean or the North Sea and you see the waves crushing and you go, wow, there is someone more powerful than me. Maybe you look at the finite flowers, the things that are in the earth, and you see, look at the intimate detail that God brought to this rose, to this plant in the garden. It's amazing. The insect's wings, the way his arms work. You have these moments, these glimpses, and then what happens? You run to the next thing. You've got to go to work. Somebody cries. It falls apart. You, you squish the bee because it's going to sting your kid. All of these things happen, right? Not, not in the future heaven. Not in the new heaven and the new earth. You actually are doing what's intended to happen taking the glory of God. So by quick way of application, three quick things to walk away with. Number one, live like this world matters. There's not a destruction. There's not an annihilation coming. that You can ignore what is happening in this world. We have a responsibility to manage it well. Not only the created order, but also as we care for one another. Think about that passage from 2 Peter. God is giving us slowness or this time, so there's repentance. So there's an opportunity for individuals to believe and join this hope and future. So there's a reason for this time that we have. Secondly, live with hope because this isn't all that matters, right? There is something more. We're going to have a body. We're going to have tasks. Uh, When I preach again in July, that's what we'll be really digging into is talking about culture and what this looks like in the new heaven and the new earth. What are we doing? What What is made up of this world? And so there's hope that Even though this world has its problems and we're not doing everything fully, there's a hope for what's coming ahead and you'll be doing stuff. So there is hope toward that. And then lastly, live with an eye for beauty. If I could compel any of us to take that extra moment to think, where is the creator present in this world? Natural beauty, in architectural beauty, as humans try to convey what they're incapable of doing, which is showing the true brilliance of the glory of God. So if you remember when I started, I talked about our hope of a future place and how that should change our current living. I'm hopeful that you have a much fuller understanding of what the new heaven and the new earth will look like and maybe even have a radically different understanding than what you thought it was going to be since, since you walked in here. But I also hope that as you think through what we've looked at, you understand it's more than just the space that you'll be occupying, but it actually becomes a future place to you. You have a connection. You see the meaning. It becomes maybe a personal connection to what you see in this world and enjoy now and see maybe some elements of that that will be future for you. So my final word is to quote from the words of Jesus to his disciples that you might be comforted as well as you think about the future place of the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is the future place that's prepared for all those who believe and love God. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would grant us imagination and faith, the hope of this future world. God, that it would change the way we live, the way we reflect on what we do here, reflect on the things that are broken and don't work here, and the way that we think around the beauty that is around us, God. You would give us stronger and deeper hope for the world that lies ahead. In your name, amen.